Hello there, it's me again, Michelle Cortens, with the information you've been waiting for. This episode is part two on effective and efficient spraying. In part one, you met our guest and learned about optimizing the sprayer to do a better job, considering what pesticide labels tell us and how to evaluate and adjust coverage. But if you haven't listened to part one, you should give it a go first. On part two now, our guest will answer confusing questions about spray concentration and then explain crop-adapted spraying. So here he is again, and the stories about spraying continue with our guest, Dr. Jason DeVoe. So could we go back to the label now? We didn't really get into talking about concentration very, very closely. So, um, you know, on a lot of labels, they don't even give a, a concentration. So what kind of concentration does the grower use in that case? We're really plucking this cord, huh? We don't have concentrations on a lot of labels. We don't have them because, as I mentioned earlier, a lot of our labels are written in a format better intended for a broad acre or a sessile crop, something that that covers a two-dimensional area. And here we are in three-dimensional land, and it just it doesn't work. So the idea, when the way products are tested, is they say things like spray to drip. So an experimenter will put a certain amount of active ingredient or, or formulated product in a volume of liquid, a carrier, water, and they'll spray a target until it's completely saturated, drenched. Why would they do that? We don't do that. Why would they do that? They do that because once it starts to drip, you can't add to how much product is on the crop. They know for sure that a certain dose had been administered. If they keep spraying it, it's like putting marbles on a plate. One marble will just knock the other one off. You'll never get any more marbles on there. So they go, okay, I know for sure this much product got on the crop. And if that works, if it gives me the results I want and residue doesn't look bad and, and uh, you know our tox comes back okay, then that's probably a rate that we should recommend the grower uses. Sadly, they don't tell us how much water they used and they don't tell us generally speaking, uh, how much product to water they used. I, I wish they would. It would be valuable information. So what does the grower do? The grower gets the label and it says put on 0.8 to 1 kilogram per hectare, depending on the size of the tree, maybe, or pest pressure, or whether you're tank mixing with other actives that might help each other out. But you get a little bit of leeway. But how much water do they put it in? Well, I'll do what dad did, or I'll do what this local... Uh, crop advisor says we should do, or we've always sprayed 500 liters to the hectare. We've always done a thousand liters to a hectare and they just do it. And it works. It has to work. We still have apples. So now we look at the label a little more critically and we go, well, how can two people who spray with entirely different sprayers, one using a lot of air and little droplets and one using very little air and big droplets, one spraying way far away into a standard tree and the other one spraying half a foot into a a semi into a, a high density target, one spraying 75% of the label rate, the other spraying 100% of the label rate, one doing 500 liters per hectare and one doing 800, how do they both succeed? So you have to look at the label and go, huh, you have a lot of built-in redundancy in you because there's no way that would have worked for both of these situations unless it was more flexible than perhaps we thought it was. And we've heard for years about the lowest efficacious dose and we've been warned about resistance and not under spraying because you know, there's a high likelihood of incurring or encouraging or speeding up resistance. All absolutely true, by the way. And yet we can't get away with the fact that 
two people spraying entirely differently with almost entirely different methodology are seeming to succeed. So if the label doesn't tell us how much water it used, and if the label doesn't tell us whether it sprayed to drench to achieve those rates, and the label doesn't tell us if it was tested with an air blast sprayer or a little backpack CO2 single nozzle boom, then we have to start making assumptions. And here's our first assumption. Whatever you're doing right now, however much product you're putting in your tank, that ratio of water to product seems to be working for you. And, you know, if a grower breaks eye contact with me or starts digging around with their toe or answers their phone, I know they're not achieving the success perhaps they would like. And I drill a little deeper and find out, uh, maybe I cut rates a bit, or I guess I should use more water, or I got in there a little later than maybe I should have, and I was hoping for kickback. So you, you flesh that out. But once you've arrived at a how much product per tank, and by the way, I don't see anybody out there cutting solupacks. Like <laughs> there's no one out there with a kitchen scale, no matter how much we hope. And please don't cut solupacks. You're not supposed to. <laughs> Little aside that I thought I should throw in. You know, they do their math. They go this much product, this much water, uh, we're good. So that's the kind of exact science we're talking about here, kids. So if we're comfortable with that, then I, instead of talking about the concentration, I start looking as to where the spray is going. Uh, and we're moving into crop adapted spraying here. And I don't want to, I don't want to jump the cue on what I'm sure you're going to ask, but I guess what I'm saying is if the label doesn't provide a concentration, I don't think we should get terribly worked up about it. If we are already spraying successfully, whatever you happen to be doing now, for whatever reason, if it's working and you're not exceeding the rate, cool. I think we could actually get into trouble if we start messing with concentrations. For example, I've always sprayed a thousand liters per hectare with one kilogram of product. And then this guy comes by and says, you're wasting half of that. It's on, it's on the ground, it's in the air, it's all over the place. You only need 500 liters per hectare. But I wanna stay on label. So I guess I have to put twice as much product in because if I'm only spraying half a tank now, I'm only spraying half the product. Whoop, we wanna be real careful with that. If you concentrate that product, yes, you could be on label as far as a rate per planted area, but you could be risking things you've never considered like phytotoxicity. Suddenly those drops are uber hot. So I, I don't generally like to mess with concentration with one exception. If you're moving from say an air blast that uses conventional nozzles to an ultra low volume system, those are designed to take a higher concentration. They need it. Otherwise, what would have been a thousand liters per hectare becomes 200 liters. And there's no way you want to drop your rate by a, you know, down to a fifth. You're, you're going to have to concentrate to some extent. How much? That is a tricky question. I, I don't have an answer for that. I do know that sometimes it can get so bad that the ultra low volume sprayers end up spraying mud. Like it, it becomes a pretty thick and viscous product because of that concentration. So you kind of have to watch that. I know in my heart, once I get down to half, I am not comfortable anymore. Uh, and there are a lot of nursery operations that started using smart apply systems, which we're going to see in orchards very shortly. I'm excited to have one uh, coming into Simcoe too, in fact, in the next month or so. But as we start talking more about concentrations and rates, if someone says, I'm going to save you half your pesticide, I, all the hair stands up on my neck. Like it just sounds too pat to me. But if someone says you're wasting 20% of your spray, 
I'm totally comfortable with that. I've seen situations that are spraying way, way, way too much and getting efficacy. And by the time we're done, we've discovered 40% of everything that came out of the sprayer just never ever touched the target anyway. So why bother spraying it? And when you do that, when you take that part away, you've made a big change to the rate per acre. But as far as the crop's concerned, it knows no difference whatsoever. The same number of drops at the same concentration hit the same targets. You just didn't spray half of it into the dirt or into the clouds. So, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of stealing away with your concentration question because it's just so darn hard to answer. I, I think if anyone's going to take anything away from my dodgy response, it's not to make big sudden changes. That We're talking about a comfort level here where it's your livelihood. And this is the kind of thing where if you do all this math and you do all these tests and discover maybe you're spraying 30% more than ostensibly you need, maybe just do a few rows. Maybe just do one tankful in a larger operation and, and monitor the response. And when you're comfortable, when you see that everything seems to be okay, and uh, I'll make a little plug here. In my experience, people that spend the time to adjust their sprayers correctly can actually do a much better job with less product and water only because the feedback brings their attention to all the misses and all the drenches. And when you even those out, you get better coverage uniformity and better crop protection, no matter how much you used per acre. But when you take the time to make those changes, if you're a little concerned about pinning the whole operation on one uber change like that. Just just do a little, we're in no rush, let it go a season and, and watch the results. So the operator might find the benefit in um, becoming more uniform and um, find that they're, they're putting the same amount in the tank, but they're actually, they might use less tanks to finish the job. Is That's that what a, I'm hearing? That is a great way to put it. You put the exact same amount of product to water, fill your spray the way you always would. You just may find you go further on a tank. And it's not just a guess about improved efficacy. We did a three to four year study in Southern Ontario with three or four orchards, depending when they came on board. And we saw evidence of less stings and, and scab and, and maggots. We had what we called maggot fest and we did, we did random harvest and destruction of apples and we looked for any indication of damage. Uh, we scouted all year, weekly students went in and looked for any evidence of anything. Um, and I did this with our IPM specialists who know so much more about this than me. And after three to four years of doing this in multiple orchards, we found just better crop protection and an average savings of 25%. And again, I, I want to be clear, this isn't cutting rates. You know, it's not the objective. In fact, the objective of all of this was improving coverage uniformity, no drenches and no gaps. Um, a nice side effect is we found out that we just didn't need a lot of what we were spraying. And some guys were already doing such a good job that they didn't, they didn't get a lot of savings, maybe 5%. And others that were blowing all over the place and figured, well, I don't really care. I'm more, I'm more worried about a clean crop than I am trimming down my water and product use, which is fine. Uh, they found that they had the, the biggest savings, the biggest gains, we'll say. And this isn't just in apples. This has long been known in horticulture, sorry, in field crops for weed protection that coverage uniformity um, plays a big role in preventing resistance and improving all of overall efficacy. Okay, and how about the product labels that are expressed in parts per million? Is that an attempt at giving like a lowest effective dose? So give me an example of some of those labels. Like Fruitone, like the plant growth regulators, uh, like Maxell, Silas Plus. Yeah, they, uh, 
I put the little caveat in when we started talking that plant growth regulators are this mysterious black art, this, this sorcerer's brew. Boy, I, I listened in on some talks, I think they were based out of Cornell not too long ago, where specialists, the, the plant growth regulators is, is what they do. Uh, and it's honestly something that I don't do as much as perhaps I should. And they were making recommendations like turning off the bottom half of your boom and only spraying into the top of the tree because that's where um, a lot of the photoassimilate is. That's where a lot of the effect that we want to have from the plant growth regulator is, is, is intended. And then I heard someone else say exactly the opposite for a different plant growth regulator. And then I heard someone say, you know, and this wasn't long ago either, um, manufacturers of variable rate systems that pulse on and off depending on if there's canopy, they try to plant sulfur and grape and when they regulated flow, they discovered it had nothing to do with coverage per se. They needed five pounds of sulfur per, per acre. Whether it was highly concentrated or not, if, if they sprayed less, they weren't getting the efficacy. So they ended up having to concentrate the sulfur to make it work. They had to turn off the variable rate aspect of the sprayer, which was a mind boggler. So. It would seem that plant growth regulators are, are, are a world all their own. They're so case specific that people on the West Coast, where it's drier and hotter, have entirely different recommendations for the same crop, for the same plant growth modifier than say uh, the East Coast where you are because of the humidity and the, and the cold. I'm not comfortable going and making pat recommendations until you're sort of in that system and you see the results. But here's what doesn't change. If you're missing the target with whatever you're spraying, it's not doing you any good. If it's dripping off the target, then no matter how long you sit there spraying it, you won't get any more to land. So whatever concentration you're using or, or however many parts per million, once you've achieved saturation, it's not like paint. You can't put layer after layer on. It's You're not doing any more. So there, there are ways to recognize when enough is enough at least. Uh, how far down should you go? That makes the hair stand up on my neck. We had a guy here in Ontario who had, I think, the last standard apple orchard that I ever worked in. Beautiful, just gorgeous. And he was so taken with the idea of spraying his very old Max with crop adapted spraying that he, he turned it over to plant growth modifiers as well. And uh, I kind of jumped around ineffectually and I said, look, these, we don't know what's going to happen here. <laughs> this isn't this isn't a fungicide. Like it works an entirely different way. Ah, if it falls out of the tree, we don't need it. And if it's drenched, it's not doing us any good either. And he was very gruff about this. He seemed to have no problems. He, it, everything worked great for him. So roll that one out slow. Use the coverage. Um, use the diagnostics we've talked about. Recognize coverage. Keep records. And if you want to try it on a few trees, do it. Go for it watch them closely, see what results you get. Don't roll that kind of thing out through your whole orchard or you know you, you can't stick blooms back on a tree and running people out there to, to hand thin and prune. You can do it, but it's gonna cost you a lot. I, I think have a plan if you're going to mess around with that one. Okay, sounds good. And so you've, uh, you've mentioned the tree row volume approach and mm -hmm. also started talking a bit about the crop adapted spraying. So how does, the approach you've been talking about kind of compare with that tree row volume approach? I'm backwards. Um, that's 
probably the easiest way to put it. I started the way a lot of people in this role start. They, they got two flags and a half full sprayer and they measured how fast it was going. Then they got a juice jug with graduated marks and they timed for 60 seconds and had the nozzle spray into a bucket to see if those were working. By the way, I sound like this is disparaging. Those are all still very viable ways to calibrate your sprayer, but they're maintenance issues. That particular definition of calibration to me is right there with seasonal maintenance. Is your sprayer working correctly? You know, So by all means do that. But if you wanna optimize your sprayer to do ultimately what you want it to do, which is get X amount of product to the tree and control for a certain pest to protect against a certain pest, then your metric should be, did it get there? What's my coverage? When I'm called out to an operation and somebody wants a sprayer adjusted, something I, I don't generally do, I'm, otherwise I'd be just calibrating everybody's sprayers, right? But I have been known to get sucked out there for workshops. Uh, I don't touch anything. I, I won't mess with a single thing. The first thing I do is put the water sensitive papers up in the target, as we've described. And I say, just do what you do. Show me, show me what you're doing before I arrived. And we spray and we collect those papers and we put them away somewhere safe um, because they do tend to get accidentally sprayed again or blow away out of the back of my truck. I've had that happen too many times. We put them away. The next thing we do is air. And this surprises people because they think, well, okay, let's, let's figure out how fast we're driving. How fast you're driving, people use that as a way to control productivity and work rate. If I drive faster, I get done faster. Boy, I, I couldn't imagine a worse thing to do. Believe it or not, the best thing you can do with travel speed is adjust your air. So air is king. It is all. It, it does so much. It takes the drop from the nozzle to the target. It opens the target. It fluffs and exposes parts of the target that wouldn't be exposed to spray normally. It fights wind. Uh, it just does it all, which is why it's the very first thing we do. We put ribbons on the far side, and by ribbons, I mean flagging tape, say 20 centimeter lengths of flagging tape. And we tie them at the bottom, middle, and top of a canopy on the upside, uh, the upside of the wind. So when you step away from your tree, you should have a bunch of ribbons trying to blow into your tree. Then you drive your sprayer with the air on. If the ribbon stands straight out, that means the air has blown right through the canopy, right past the ribbon and carried all the spray with it. If they don't move at all, well, that could mean two things. One, the air only got so far into the canopy and then just couldn't push its way through, either because the canopy was dense or the wind in the orchard was too high. Not necessarily a bad thing for a big canopy, but for a smaller canopy, if you don't see them move a little bit, you might not be doing the job you think you should be doing. So what do you do about it? Well, we can raise your RPMs if it's a positive displacement trailed air blast sprayer and your fan will speed up, up to about 540 RPMs. You can change your gear if you have a geared system to go higher, low fan speed. And if all that fails you, deflectors and travel speed. The slower you drive, the longer your dwell time. The longer your dwell time, the more chance your sprayer has to push air out of the way and make a kind of a stream like the wake behind a boat. So you do any of those things, anything it takes to make that ribbon, ribbon just waft a little as you drive by. And this is where you can hide all the physics. Like you don't need to worry about inverse square law or, or the fact that it takes you know, eight times the pressure to do four times, like forget all that, make the ribbon wiggle. It's, it's honestly just that simple. And it captures all those variables. Once the air is correct, now, we start talking about things like nozzles. 
if you have a really big target, you're probably going to put about two thirds of your flow in the top half of your nozzles. Why? Because those, that spray has the furthest distance to go and it's most likely to evaporate and most likely to blow off course. And it loses a lot of energy before it gets there. So you kind of need to hedge your bets and have more flow. Whereas at the bottom of the tree, you're right next to it. You really couldn't miss it and spray falls. So, you know, secondary settling or atom, secondary settling, it's called, means that everything falls and lands on the up, uh, upward facing parts of the tree. And, you know, you're going to get a little coverage from the next row over. There is some small cumulative impact. Point is, you really don't need to fuss and stress over the very bottom of the, the boom the way you do at the top. And that's not always the case, by the way. It depends on the shape of the tree and the size of the tree and the distance of the tree and the make of the sprayer and the phase of the moon and how you're feeling that day. But that is a generality of how you would distribute the flow over the nozzles. Put the papers in the tree, spray. If it's blue, too much. If it's yellow, not enough. Use the 85 drops and 10 to 15% coverage as your guide. Change nozzles until you get what you like. Now, people don't tend to have a huge library of $8 molded nozzles in their back pocket. That's a, that's a big investment. I don't expect you to make that investment. But brass, disc, and core are dirt cheap. And I have a fishing tackle box full of those. I think it may have cost me 150 bucks. And I know that raises eyebrows, but honestly, you'll save that in 10 minutes of spraying if you do this right. I fiddle with the brass until I like what I see. And then I work backwards and go, all right, what, what rates do I ended up, did I end up with in those positions to give me this great coverage? And what's the nearest possible equivalent in a molded ceramic hollow cone nozzle? And then you pony up for the good tips. Uh, and put the brass away. They're no good for anything. Just chuck them. They're, they're really only there to test flow as far as I'm concerned. They melt like wax. Are you getting the point? I don't like them. So now you've got your flow set up. You've got your air set up. You've got your travel speed set up. You've got your coverage, but you actually don't know how much you're spraying. So this is where you go all the way backwards and do the rest of the math. All right, how fast was I driving? What are each of these nozzles putting out? What does that mean for how much water I'll end up spraying per hectare. And ultimately, if I put the same amount of product in a tank, how far does that product get me? So isn't that odd that you would end up going completely backwards to how we've all been taught? But the nice part of doing it this way is your goal is achieved. You recognize that you have the most efficient, efficient meaning no waste, and ostensibly effective, as long as you don't futz around with the concentration, uh, coverage that you could manage. And everyone goes, oh, this is just awesome. And you say, great. Now do it again for this entirely different orchard next door. Oh, so now we try to find some efficiencies. Uh, I did it all. And I, I ended up with three completely different sprayer loadouts. And I don't think I want to make all those changes between three blocks. I get that. So maybe uh, just set it up for the worst case scenario and know you're going to overspray the smaller blocks a bit but you only have to make a change once, you know, find your comfort level. And then I really blow their minds and go, great. Now you're good to say pedal fall. What? Well, you got a pile of sticks in the spring and you've got this beautiful full tree later. You, you can't think they're going to need the same recipe. No, I guess not. So some people uh, recognize that maybe they need to redistribute the flow a little bit because the apples are pulling the boughs a bit lower and maybe that matters. Or they go, you know, I'm just going to push the pressure up a little. I like the distribution the way it is. I'm going to increase flow just by bringing my pressure up. Or I guess I recognize I have more canopy. So that means I got to blow a little harder. 
and I don't want to change any of that. So if I slow down a little bit, now I get additional flow because there's more canopy and I blow a little harder to deal with it. So it'll take a season before all this brouhaha works through. And someone that's been doing this 50 years, 15 years suddenly realizes, God, I, this is, I, I'm not comfortable at all. Now I don't know where I'm going to end up or how much water I'm using or what nozzles. I get it. it. It's intimidating. It's a pain in the butt. So I'll say what I've said throughout this podcast, and that's just maybe start slow. Pick one block. See how it works. See if it's worth it. Uh, do your numbers at the end of the season. Return on investment is a really great motivator. If you find out that a few man hours of futzing around and labor, uh, once you've worked all those little kinks out, I think you'll find you saved more than you lost, either in water and pesticide as an absolute input cost, or perhaps uh, in the quality, the, the yield quality of the apples that you're, you're gonna get off the trees. So, you know, you make these changes perhaps the best tool I could offer you is a sharp pencil, like write things down, really see what you did, monitor what you did and see what the impacts are. And then if you're comfortable, uh, roll it out to a larger extent in the rest of the orchard. So that's, that's crop adapted spraying in a nutshell. Yeah. I think we should have had a spoiler alert at the start of this podcast, because if people want to learn more, they can look at the second edition of air blast 101. Is that right? Ooh, I get to plug my toys. <laughs> um, I'd say, so God, seven or eight years ago now, I, I wrote, I kind of wrote a book. It was all my cheat sheets that all the growers and specialists taught me about how to deal with certain situations. I, I wrote them down and I put them in a binder. And I was doing a workshop one day and the growers stopped listening. We'd had a break or something. And I found them all kind of gathered around the back of the truck uh, with my cheat sheets, my Coles notes to spraying. And it, it really was just bullets do this if you see this, if you see this, try that. And uh, it kind of gave birth to a, a winter workshop and I called it Air Blast 101. And it went, it went really well. It was really just a loose collection of tips and tricks. And people wanted to hear more of it. And I, you know, I, I work in Ontario and I, I couldn't go to all the places I wanted to go to. So I thought maybe if I start a little website, people can do self-directed learning and just go through the contents of this book or booklet at the time. And it all kind of got out of control, if I'm honest. Um, the Sprayers 101 site grew. Uh, I met Dr. Tom Wolf out in Saskatchewan, and I recognized that there really wasn't enough for the field croppers in it. So uh, I invited him on board, and we, we really just repurposed the whole thing. And in fact, it, it was entirely different by the time he and I were done. It's 100% ours now, not just mine. Uh, all the air blast stuff was there, but it's married to good field crop information. And it started to get pretty popular. So anyone that wants to see videos on how to do this or articles written by people from all over the world, it's become a nonprofit clearinghouse for sprayer information and all aspects of spraying. It could be uh, cleaning or storage or, or PPE. It could be talk about drift, any, anything that's related. Any stakeholder may have something they want to learn from it. But the book, the book kept growing. It became an actual book in 2015. And when I finished it, I swore I would never do anything like that again. It was brutal. From the moment it was finished, there were typos I could never fix. And I had learned so much, even in the time that I wrote it, I wish I hadn't written certain things. So imagine how surprised I was when COVID hit. I invited David Mangtelo out of New Zealand, who's a sprayer guru, just awesome. And uh, 
Mark Lederborough, who's in Michigan. I said, guys, why don't we, why don't we tear this open? Why don't we write the second edition? Why don't we make it more worldly? There's a lot of sprayers that we don't have here in Canada that it would be really nice if we did. There's a lot of spraying systems and, and techniques that we don't have in Canada, but it would be really nice if we did. So this book should have all of that. And because I didn't just write it for an air blast sprayer, I wrote it for all makes and models of air assist sprayer and all crops. We had to find a way to make it applicable to everyone, but not boring for someone who started to read it and go, well, this is not relevant for me. So, you know, we used physics, sorry, but we made it conversational and we folded it full of cartoons and there's hardly a page on there that doesn't have an illustration or something to help push the concepts through. And after 14 months of screaming at one another over the phone from our kitchen tables, uh, it was born. And it's now on Sprayers 101 backslash Airblast 101. It's free. It's 300 pages, interactive PDF, or you can get it as an ebook. But if you're like me and you're old, there's nothing better than a book. So we work through a, a print-on-demand publisher, and they charge whatever it costs to print a book and send it to you. So everything we've talked about here today, and so much better worded than, than what I managed to spit through this mic, I highly recommend you grab a copy. As I say, it's it's free, it's not profit. It's just the best information we could provide you. And I hope you guys find benefit in it. Excellent. Yeah, I'm going to include it in the show notes, along with links to some of the other resources that you mentioned. So um, anyone listening will be able to just check those out in the show notes. I've already been digging into it. So I really appreciate the information in there. And I'd like to congratulate you on the second edition. Thanks, Michelle. And congratulations on Orchard Outlook. I, In a time where people are overwhelmed by digital media, it's, it's nice to have something like this to listen to in the off hours. So well done. Thank you. Thanks for joining me and chatting today. Follow me on Twitter at NSTreeFruit and follow Perennia on Facebook and Twitter at NSPerennia. Thanks to Perennia for blasting into the podcast space. Thank you to Patty Ryan for giving us a dose of great design and to Rachel Brown for excellent coverage of this episode. And of course, thanks to growers for their interest in safe, efficient, and effective spraying. Here's a fun fact. If I need to search a pesticide label for a specific keyword like entry or harvest, there's a shortcut I couldn't live without. I pull up the label on a computer and use the keys Control and F simultaneously to bring up a search bar and enter my word. Bye, thanks for listening, and please remember to rate and subscribe. 